G'day, I'm Glenn Davis from the University of Melbourne and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place we can think about public policy as it affects Australia and sometimes the world. Education is high stakes, so I think it's reasonable that government does take a strong interest in this in terms of it being a public policy issue. But I guess a key is in the development of that public policy that they make sure that they actually listen to people who are on the ground. Today, how should we teach the teachers? This has become a lively political debate with ministers worrying in public about the quality of our teachers and the consequences for our schools. How does this nation recruit the very best to teaching? And how do we encourage our teachers to stay with the profession and build on the skills as they develop? These are questions important to the public, important to universities. My struggle is the profession denies its expertise. They never talk about the excellence of teachers, the excellence of school leaders, the excellence of teacher educators. That's Professor John Hattie, one of the world's leading thinkers and researchers in teacher education. He's director of the Educational Research Institute at the University of Melbourne's Graduate School of Education and the author of numerous books and papers, in particular the book Visible Learning, a substantial collection of evidence-based research looking at what works best in improving education outcomes. He joins me in the policy shop with Judy Crow, president of the Victorian Association of State Secondary Principals, who brings a wealth of experience to the discussion. Judy has many years of experience as a school principal in both rural and inner city government schools, and her most recent position was at the highly regarded Melbourne Girls College. Judy, John, great to have you with us. So Judy, we take it for granted that good teachers matter. But why? What's the connection between the quality of teachers and the outcomes for students? Well, I think the research shows you that it is the difference that an individual teacher makes that is a key thing, as well as the student's background, of course. But the thing that we can control more than background, of course, is the teacher. So there has to be a strong emphasis upon the selection of teachers in the first place, uh, the training of those teachers and the support that they have through the various stages of their careers. So I think it, it is a very important issue in terms of public policy Education is high stakes in Australia and indeed in all countries, and so it's natural that the government would take a strong interest in this in terms of public policy. Okay, but why is it a problem for government? Why would governments feel that it's their obligation? Yeah, I think that government invests heavily in education. They are required to do that. It is funded through government. And as a consequence of that, um, they do demonstrate a a strong interest. But further to that, um, having a well-educated society does provide the basis for a strong business economy as well. So it's not just looking at education for the sake of education, but it's actually the whole structure of our society. The social fabric of society is to a large extent dependent upon on the well-being of our students as they graduate from our schools. So education is high stakes. So I think it's reasonable that government does take a strong interest in this in terms of it being a public policy issue. But I guess a key is in the development of that public policy that they make sure that they actually listen to people who are on the ground. So John, it's hard to find an issue that's been more reviewed than this one. In fact, you've counted 
101 state or national reviews of teacher education over the past two decades, the most recent one only late last year. Why so many reviews? I think following what uh, Judy has commented, it's a matter of high stakes to get right. And if it is the case that teachers do make the biggest difference, how we train them, how we select them, uh, how we get them into schools so that they're kind of running when they get there is absolutely critical. And this is why I think uh, we've had so many reviews, but you've got to seriously ask about the impact of those 101 damnations. <laughs> okay. Well, is there, has there been a common set of findings? Do these reviews tend to land with the same answers? And what are they? They do tend to the same answers, the same answers which typically don't matter too much, and that is what courses are being taught. They worry about the selection to get into the, the courses. They worry about whether they've got the right number of hours and days of practicum. They worry about whether the people in the schools are the right people, etc. And you know, we've done so many different recommendations in those areas. They don't matter. So why does nothing happen as a result? Well, we all like to have public policy. That means we only have to tweak what we do. The difference with the TBAG report you mentioned, the one that's the most recent one, has dramatically changed the focus. And I think it's got a higher probability of having an impact because institutions will have to change what they do. So what are the key findings? The key message is that the institutions will have to provide evidence that their graduates can change the learning lives of students when they start. Um, yes, they are going to be worried about all that other stuff, like who's teaching them and what courses and whatever, but the major focus is on that evidence. So we've been asking teachers and schools to do that for 10 years. This will be the first time we've asked teacher educators. Judy, so that report points to a whole set of perceived problems. We can argue about whether the evidence supports their problems. Falling education standards measured against OECD averages. The question of teacher retention relatively few teachers staying in the profession. Well, I think that um, when we consider the number of teachers who go into teacher training in the first place and the number of teachers who are there in three or five years' time, that does signal a big problem. But when you look at it from the point of view of a principal in a school, that it's not actually the problem that is seen so much at the school level because once we select staff, we tend to hang on to the staff that we would want to stay in teaching. There are times that um, some teachers Teachers, despite the fact that they're selected for the job and they look as if they've got the goods to do the job, it pans out that they don't have the qualities to be able to actually make a good go of the teaching profession. So it's better all round if they don't continue on. So there is some attrition that I think is healthy. And I think one of the big issues that we have is with so many people actually engaged in teacher training, schools are spending a lot of resource assisting with teacher training and a lot of those people actually don't complete their teacher training. There is an oversupply of teachers at the moment and so schools are putting a lot of energy into looking after people who are not actually going to end up in the profession. So perhaps if we could swing more energy into doing more with respect to mentoring of people once they're into jobs put the energy into that, although I would say that schools already do put quite a lot of effort into that, but the amount of effort that's put into having student teachers in schools is significant. But the issue for schools is um, it rarely is that we see in a school a good teacher, someone we would want to stay, who doesn't stay. So that's actually a little bit different from what the research is suggesting. And that's just not my experience. It's experience I've had in speaking to colleagues about this. So the retention 
there are some other issues that need to be explored. Because the data suggests that only one teacher in 10 stays in the profession over the long haul. Well, that's one teacher in 10 if you're looking at who actually commences teacher training. And I think about 50% drop out during teacher training. Some are not able to secure work. So that might simply be a supply and demand issue, or it may be that some of those people who've completed teacher training actually don't have the qualities that schools are looking for in terms of the selection of staff. So as a principal of 20 years' experience, Mm. you must have selected an awful lot of teachers along the way. What were you looking for? Looking for people who've got strong academic standards, a strong academic performance, because if they've been able to uh, do well academically, it suggests they've got some other organisational skills which are very important to survive in the classroom. But more than that, what one really looks for in selecting a teacher is someone who is going to be able to interact comfortably with students, who has a good sense of self, a sense of confidence in themselves, an ability to relate to young people so that they don't set up power plays with young people. So there are certain qualities that if we can look at those qualities when people are actually being selected for teacher training courses, I think that would be a great advantage. But um, through selection processes, there are teachers, there are prospective candidates who are not selected for jobs uh, for, for very strong reasons. You've said that there are strong reasons why people aren't selected for teaching. Mm. Yes, sometimes it is to do with their academic qualifications, that they don't have the range of subjects that a school would be looking for, because to get a timetable to work in a school, you really need to have people who have just the correct match of subjects that you're looking for. So that can discount some good candidates. It might be that you have a history English vacancy and the person can only teach the English part. So there are those practical things, but it's probably more in terms of the personal qualities that one looks for in selecting um, individuals who can't relate comfortably with a panel. Of course, one always takes into account that people can be nervous, so how they present can be different. There's no definition to it. But as someone who has sat on a lot of panels, you get to, to pick that up. You look at work ethic. That's a really strong Um, determinant. Their preparedness to get involved in the life of the school. Schools are not just about what happens in the classroom. Certainly that's key, but you look to people who are going to be prepared to go on camps, to maybe have uh, an interest in being involved in musicals. All those sorts of things are really key determinants. So if you've got someone who's really narrowly focused, you get the sense that they'd never take a risk, that they're really sort of tight in their thinking and that they wouldn't relate to to students or wouldn't even like students. They're the students that we don't select for teaching positions. John, as someone on the other side of the equation teaching prospective teachers, who do you encourage and who do you have concerns about? Well, certainly the same attributes Judy was talking about for selecting it to the actual profession is what we should be and need to be looking at. Uh, at the earlier days as well. But I'd add one thing to what Judy was saying, and which is the, f- the focus of my work at the moment, is I want one thing more. I want some demonstration they can actually impact on the learning lives of students, not that they've got the courses and that they've got the relationships. I want that, and I'd like to see that through demonstrations and evidence that they produce to you, which is a major function of what we should be doing, helping create that evidence. So what evidence are you looking for? What does a new teacher have to provide to persuade Judy that she or he can make a difference in the classroom? 
Well, probably the the toughest thing um, that happens in teacher education is for teachers, new teachers, to know about their impact, know that they actually are making a change, a sufficient change, and a change to all the students. So I'd be looking for evidence from their pracs, from their coursework, that they actually can take. Obviously, not a whole class all the time because they don't get that chance, but some students, some of the times, on some occasions, to actually change that learning lives of students and get away from the correlates of those things and actually go straight to it. This is The Policy Shop, coming to you from the University of Melbourne. I'm Glenn Davis, and my guests are Professor John Hattie from the Melbourne Graduate School of Education and Judy Crow, President of the Victorian Association of State Secondary Principals. Over the years, Conservative and Labor national governments and state governments as well have put together quite an array of ideas aimed at improving the standard of teaching and the outcomes. The most recent, of course, was the Teacher Education Ministerial Advisory Group, or TMAG, commissioned by the Federal Coalition Government with a report called Action Now, Classroom Ready Teachers. A couple of weeks ago, I released the Teacher Education Ministerial Advisory Group report into teacher training at our teaching institutions in Australia. It found that there were some notably good exceptions of good practice, but there was far too much bad practice in the teacher training of our students at university. And of course, that has been identified by the OECD as the most important factor in Australian schooling at bringing about good uh, student outcomes for our students. That was Christopher Pine, then Federal Minister for Education and Training, speaking in Parliament in February 2015. And just recently, Opposition Leader Bill Shorten announced Federal Labor's education policy, which includes the commitment to fund years five and six of the Gonski Review. My shadow colleagues and I have been talking about the largest boost for school funding in Australia in two generations. We're calling it Your Child, Our Future. We want to make sure that every school is a great school. We want to make sure that the most important thing we can do in our world, which is providing a good education for our kids, we want to make sure that the kids are getting the best quality education in the world. So education remains a lively political topic and lots of reviews, national curriculum, review of performance pay for teachers, political debate about the level of funding following the Gonski recommendations. And all of these initiatives have in their background the decline in Australia's standing in the OECD league tables. For example, in the most recent OECD league table, measuring achievements in maths and science, Australia has dropped to a ranking of 14, far below our Asian neighbours, well below the highest European country, Finland, which ranks at number seven. Most media commentary, of course, has focused on the quality of teachers, using as a proxy the entry scores for those students who access undergraduate education courses at universities across Australia. So there are proposals for minimum scores and for literacy and numeracy tests for graduates. There's a lot of evidence about what works and what doesn't work in encouraging better school outcomes. John Hattie, are ATAR scores a significant input to education quality? Would imposing a minimum ATAR make a difference? Well, certainly going back half a step, Glenn, in that high school achievement, 
you'd hope high school achievement has some role to play in the selection into university. And at the moment, ATAR is one of our best measures of that. Now, whether it's a good measure or not is a hot political debate. But the second part of it is, should it be part of the entry requirements to universities? Certainly from where I sit, I think that's a role for universities to make that decision, Mm -hmm. not for the public policy um, in, in terms of a government or a ministerial notion. They've given you that power. I'd be surprised, however, if you didn't use some measure of high school achievement. In fact, I'd be more than surprised. I notice, uh, having worked in the American system for many years, where they don't have high school achievement. They have a surrogate of IQ tests they call university entrance tests. That would bother me because it would perversely change the schools that Judy runs. I want more, though. I think going back to our earlier discussion, I want more in terms of not just some evidence of they have sufficient achievement skills to succeed, but I also want some evidence that they have communication skills, they can relate to others. Um, Many of the people that will drop out are those students who are very bright that can't relate to others. I think that should be part of our selection into the system, yes. Judy, we teach teachers through a range of different ways in Australia. Some come straight through undergraduate programs, typically many do graduate diplomas at the completion of their undergraduate science or arts degree. And a few institutions, including this one, have insisted on a master's level qualification. As a school principal, do you and your colleagues have views on how we should train people? And have you noticed any differences in the different cohorts that you've experienced? Um, Most of my colleagues would acknowledge that the people who are coming into teaching these days are of a very high standard. That's how we would see it. And the notion of them being classroom ready, of course, that is very important. But we also see that schools have got a big role to play once they're actually teaching full time so that we are realistic about the starting point that they come. And we just want to see that they've got that ability to grow once they're in full time work and can cope with the workload. The comparisons that we make with countries like Finland, I think we've got to be very, very mindful about the context of those different countries. And by making comparisons with Shanghai and Hong Kong, which are above us on league ladders, we have to say, well, is that the sort of education system we want for our students? And so the measures that might be used in some of those countries are quite different from what we would want to use here, because I think context is important and being able to teach the range of students that we have here is important. I think, Judy, following that up, I'd make a very strong argument that we do have successful teacher education programs in this country. There's no need to go to Finland and Shanghai. Mm. I'm not sure we have the courage to recognise that, but that certainly is going to be one of the outcomes of TMAG. Yeah. I would add to that that um, some of the qualities that we look for in students coming into teaching, we want them to have a sense of adventure, a sense of fun, a sense of being outward looking. And it's some of those qualities that actually cause students to seek other opportunities. So a standard thing once students get a position in a school is a couple of years down the track, they want to travel. So they would be people who would come up in the statistics as people no longer in the profession so that we have a lot of people going on family leave so that they also would be seen as people leaving the profession. So the understanding of the figures needs to be there. And when I I comment that it's not necessarily the picture that principals see in terms of the attrition from the profession that seems to come through the research. It's some of that more fine detailed work that needs to be considered about who actually leaves, what they're doing, whether they come back. But there is a fair duty that the average age of starting teacher education in this country is now 27, 28. And in America, it's now 34, 35. My fear is we're becoming a part-time profession. We're becoming a profession, you come in too late, you come in a profession for a short time, and you leave. 
that is not the profession I want. I see it's a long-term development, so we have to find ways to get people to come in and want to stay in. Yes, I agree. We don't want people coming in and out on a whim, but as well we have to recognise that the world in which we live, young people are more inclined to shop around in terms of professions. I think if we applied some of this logic to people going into law, we'd be concerned about the same sorts of issues, people not um, working in law who have trained in law. But of course it's very wasteful of resources if we have people going in and out at too great a rate. But what I do see is that the life experiences that people have who have done something else, they often come into the profession much more prepared to accept the conditions of the the job. We can actually put too much emphasis upon what is difficult about the job rather than celebrating what's good about the role. And I think people coming in who've already been in other professions who come into teaching, they do have a significant amount that they can contribute to schools. And I think they will be the ones who are inclined to stay. But I think we do have to be realistic that there will be some level of people moving in and out of the profession as occurs in other professional groups. So we've talked about the limitations of ATAR as a sorting mechanism for who gets in, but Does the mode of how we educate matter? Does it matter if people come in as undergraduates or graduate diplomas or even master's students? Are there clear and systematic differences in outcomes, John? I'm not very happy with the debate about the way we do it in terms of the years and the uh, whether it be undergraduate, postgraduate. I think there is evidence that postgraduate entry into teaching does make a positive difference, yes. Uh, That's not where this country is at at the moment, and that's not one of the TMAG recommendations, but it does make a big difference. It's more what they do when they're in there, and that focus on making sure the teacher educators are ensuring that they are classroom ready, that they are ready to have an impact on the lives of students. I think that's the biggest difference. Too often, as I've seen programs go from three years to four years to five years, nothing changes. It's the old stuff, just more of it, and it's the wrong stuff. So if you were advising government as you've been doing in these through these review processes, what is the right way to improve the quality of teaching in this nation and to make sure that when we teach the teachers, we do it to the best way possible? Well, I think the first thing is to make sure we got the right problems on the table. And I take, for example, you saying before about Australia falling back in PISA. Knowing why we're falling back is critical. And I think we do know why. We're falling back with our top 40% of our kids. We're actually much better at teaching kids who are sort of below the average than we are above the average. And we have too many cruising schools. And I think that's something we need to be very clear of. Have we got the right problem on the table? In the same way in teaching the teachers, have we got the right problem? And certainly I'm very keen in my role as the chair of AITSL who's implementing TMAG to make sure that we solve the problem about demonstrating impact. So the great places, and there are great places in this country, can shine. And those who are not so great know that that's what they have to change. Don't tweak with the number of years, the courses, who's teaching them and all those kind of things. Worry about changing the lives of children. Judy Crow, when you think about this as a problem, we've discussed government's role, but what is the role of the profession? And why have we not heard much from organisations representing teachers and principals in the debate about ATARs and teacher quality? Um, I think that the profession is not listened to sufficiently. I think that we do have our voice there, but there are many voices in this arena. And so the voice of principals who often are the ones who sort of see quite broadly what's happening in schools, they're not necessarily heard. Um, There are the voice of unions who represent 
the majority of teachers. They have particular perspectives on on things. And then we have the voice of parents. Um, they have a particular perspective on this. And all those voices influence the political decisions because at the end of the day, it's often political decisions that determine the changes that will occur. But yes, I think it's the number of stakeholders that we have and people who have uh, very strong opinions, but not necessarily have the opinion that's grounded in the reality of schools. Can I can I contest you a little bit there, Judy? When I hear the principals talking, I hear they talk about the conditions, about the funding, about the zoning, about the curriculum, about the assessment. My struggle is the profession denies its expertise. They never talk about the excellence of teachers, the excellence of school leaders, the excellence of teacher educators. And so when I hear the profession talking particularly to the politicians, they don't talk about what really matters, the quality of the teachers, the quality of the school leaders. Help. Yeah, John, I think that that's actually changing. I think there is a greater emphasis these days on the sorts of things that you talk about when you talk about teachers being classroom ready. So it's actually the skill of teaching that we haven't been a profession that has defined our attributes particularly well. And I think that has meant that we haven't got the language, we haven't had the language to communicate what it is that we do in the classroom. So I think to some extent you're right in saying that we haven't been the best advocates for our own profession. And another reality is that the funding issues have been so dominant and so difficult for those of us as principals that we have tended to focus on those issues and perhaps have left out issues about classroom practice. But I see a change. There has been a change, I think, in the last 10 years where principals these days are being selected more as educational leaders rather than administrators of schools. And And we have our standards, both for principals uh, and for teachers. That's correct. And I, I think all of that, we're moving in the right direction. But I think as a country, we've perhaps been a bit behind other countries where there has been more of an articulation of these sorts of qualities that you refer to. John, as we turn to home, in most Australian policy debates, federalism looms large. So what is the role for state and national governments in teaching the teachers? Well, it's a good mix in this case because the states have the authority over the schools and the federal has the authority over the universities. And clearly, teacher education is at the mix of those two things. Um, In one sense, that makes it easier for the federal government to have the TMAG report, but it makes it tougher to implement because every time we have to go to Education Council and convince eight ministers uh, of the direction of where it's going. So far, that's gone extremely well. Um, So that is a very interesting conundrum. On the one hand, we've got eight chances of getting it right, On the other hand, it can be very difficult, but it's a perfect mix to do this. And John, you pointed to the strength of Australian expertise in this field, but what can we learn from overseas? Certainly in the teacher education space, the United States, through its CAPE movement, have tried to implement the kind of policy TMAG's done, and I was involved in that in the the late 90s in America. They're trying again. Um, We are actually at the forefront. No other country is doing this. We have over 400 programs of teacher education in this country. Um, It's quite a large business. Uh, But to actually say if any other country is being as brave as Australia in terms of implementing evidence about impact, there isn't one at the moment that we can find. And Judy, if the Victorian Association of State Secondary Principals had the ear of the Federal Minister for Education or the State Minister in a sustained way, what would you be looking for? What's the one thing that could make a difference? 
I think making sure that people who go into the profession are well regarded, and that's quite a complex thing to get to that point in time. But I think the messages that go out about teaching, about the teaching profession, we hear that, we heard that in the little snippet from Pine, a certain attitude towards teaching. So the more we live in a world where teachers are maligned, where they're seen as not competent, that causes young people not to want to join the profession. So I think there's a lot to do with the perception of teachers, the status of the profession, how we are viewed, and there are a, a whole lot of uh, complications in terms of why the situation has got to where it is today, where it's not seen as a profession of choice for young people. How many girls at Melbourne Girls College did you encourage and get into the profession of being a teacher? John, I spent a lot of my career encouraging people to go into teaching because I think it's the most important profession. It was a profession that I was not my first choice of profession. I joined it slightly later, but I see it as a really critical profession for young people to go into and certainly encourage students to go into it. John, what's the top of your list for policy advice? The top of my list for policy advice is we have to find ways to esteem excellence in our profession. We have to find ways to give esteem to the highly accomplished and lead teachers, the highly accomplished and and lead principals. I need the profession to help us do that, but I do think that is the biggest issue. That's the best way to get the best people to come into teaching if we acknowledge, reliably identify and esteem excellence. Thank you, Judy and John. Thank you. Thanks very much, Glyn. We've been talking to Judy Crow, President of the Victorian Association of State Secondary Principals, and Professor John Hattie from the Melbourne Graduate School of Education about the role of public policy in teaching the teachers and in retaining the very best teachers in our system. I'm Glenn Davis. Thanks for your company. And be sure to join us for our next conversation in The Policy Shop. You've been listening to The Policy Shop, coming to you from the University of Melbourne. This episode was produced by Owen Hahesi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. You can find more information on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. And remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes.